Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Uh, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club's Marin Conversations. I'm Bruce Robbie. I'm the CEO of Relevant Wealth Advisors here in um, Mill Valley. And I'm also on the Board of Governors of the Commonwealth Club. So uh, one of my passions is bringing the Commonwealth Club events to Marin. And uh, that's what we've been doing for about four years here. So uh, thank you for joining us. Let's see, how many people here in the room tonight eat food? Okay, great. Well, you've come to the right talk. So I want to introduce our speakers tonight. Paul Dolan is the former president of the uh, Wine Institute in Fetzer Vineyards. Uh, He's a pioneer in biodynamic farming. I think you were at Fetzer for 27 years. Did I make that up? Yeah. Now he has a, 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 his own vineyard up in Ukiah, about 70 acres, and then he's also running Truett & Hurst in his free time. And he was nice enough to bring the wine tonight, so thank you. It's a delicious wine from Truett & Hurst tonight. Thank you. Um, and uh, Michael Dimmick is internationally recognized as a thought leader, organizer, and advocate for transformational, the transformation of food and farming systems. That sounds really important. And uh, currently, Michael is the president of Roots of Change. Uh, I took a look at their website, rootsofchange.org. Uh, they're doing some really powerful things in changing the way we, uh, we grow food, in our, primarily in our state, and hopefully we will be the, uh, the seed that moves across the country. So take a look at uh, Michael's website if you have a few moments, and if you want to make a donation, it's an opportunity for that too. So on that note, I'm going to shut up and hand it over to Michael, who will begin tonight's conversation. Thank you very much for coming. Good evening. Uh, very nice to see you all. Thank you, Bruce, and thank you, Diane, for working with us to get this all set up. Um, it's a great pleasure. There are a lot of people actually out there that I recognize and uh, and have had a chance to touch base with a few and really appreciate you showing up tonight. Um, Marin County obviously is a fantastic place to have a conversation like this. Uh, John Wicks is in the room and he's one of the great uh, ranchers in the country that uh, is doing some of the stuff we're going to get into. Um, so it's nice to have you here as a, a beacon of light for us So uh, and hope people will introduce themselves. Um, so we're going to have a conversation tonight with one of the the great pioneers, one of the people that I learned about early in my life, um, Paul Dolan, who uh, <clears throat> um, has has been uh, a great source of information and knowledge for me. I've had many good conversations through the years, and so we're going to have another one tonight. Um, and uh, I think what we should start with, because we had a little chance to touch base the other day about this evening, and we both were commenting on the title of the talk. Farming to Save the Earth. And when you first see that, you might think that's very hyperbolic, it might seem to some people. In fact, I had someone mention it to me. So what were your first thoughts when you saw the title? Well, actually, to be honest with you, I'm not sure that I shared this with you the other day. Actually, my personal commitment in life is to create a shift in the sustainability of the planet through agriculture. And um, uh, I've been organizing myself around that for a long time. Actually, 20 years ago, it was to create a shift in the sustainability of the planet through business leadership. So I got very involved in the the framework and the development of sustainability in the wine business. And probably some some of you may know that the wine business actually took a real strong leadership position around sustainability. And we wrote a code of sustainable wine growing practices back 20 years ago now. And there's over um, 70% of the wineries and the grape growers in, Men- in, in not Mendocino, but in California, are now engaged in this uh, process of rating oneself as a self-assessment guide. And um, the reason I got so involved with that was because I was doing it with my company. I had this particular passion for running a company that um, was... Uh, committed to environmental and social responsibility and made great wine. That was sort of my my mantra, if you will. And inside of that time frame, we explored what did it what did it what did that mean, and how would that show up? And we ended up designing our organizing our company around the triple bottom line, which we called E three: social equity, environmental, and um, uh, e- economics. And uh, from there, I've, I've, I've continued to explore in my life, and my great passion now is agriculture. And uh, so essentially, that's, uh, 
And that's that's what that's why Michael and I are here because we're going to talk about agriculture. So, that's so what comes uh, to yeah, um, I'm I'm curious about why you think it, what you know. Do you know what it is in your character or your process of thinking about the world that you know? Why did you become interested in sustainability? What what was the first um, impulse that brought you to start thinking about it? Um, well, let me see. I, when I started out in life, I, when I really wanted to do something that was just really fun, and I decided that winemaking would be fun. It would be an artistic in, endeavor, and I've been blessed to be in the wine business, no question about it. It's just been fantastic for me. And in those very early years, I can remember being in uh, one particular vineyard. It was a Sauvignon Blanc vineyard and tasting fruit. And as a winemaker, that's what we did. We usually made our decisions based on taste, not so much um, based on chemistry or analytics. And I can remember being in one vineyard, tasting the fruit off of one Sauvignon Blanc vine, and it had all of the fruit and melon and fig characteristics that I'd expect for Sauvignon Blanc. And then just walking 10 feet over, tasting a berry off another vine, and found it to be flat and insipid. And I didn't get that. I didn't understand why that was. And I would always have great hopes for that wine, but each year it would end up going into our everyday table wine. But three years after we converted that vineyard to organic, those same very same grapes went into our top-level Sauvignon Blanc. So what I discovered for myself was, one, I could make better wine if I took the chemicals out and I farmed organically. And the other one was I realized that that I must have been doing something negative to the vineyard and probably negative. I, I assessed that it was probably to the microbial life in the soil. And then I started to realize that um, when the rains came, they probably washed the residue of those chemicals downstream into somebody else's property. So I realized I came to the awareness that um, my business wasn't isolated. I wasn't alone, and the things that I did m made a difference good or bad, and I could expand my awareness on that. So I started down that path of um, kind of challenging my assumptions and, um, and, and exploring in different areas. So it went from organic to, to, to biodynamic to sustainability to um, now what I, the term and the, the framework um, and the paradigm I look at is regenerative farming. So um, one thing that I don't know if everybody knows this about you, but you were born into... Uh, a, a wine make, uh, a kind of a, a wine making family that goes way back. How many people remember Italian Swiss Colony? So that was his family, and Ken Cannon. You have to which be is, a certain age to be able to put your hand yeah. up. I remember. How many people remember the commercials on, on TV? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, there's a there's a legacy there, um, and it's probably it'd be interesting to know. When Italian Swiss Colony was started, and they were growing grapes up in northern Sonoma, were they, how were they growing grapes then? Were they growing grapes like you were growing them in the 90s or the 80s, or were they growing them differently early on, 50s, 60s? Well, they started growing grapes in 1881. Okay. So I don't know how they grew <laughs> right. back then. There really wasn't uh, – it was pretty early before the advent of uh, chemical farming and um, synthetic uh, fertility and nitrogen. Uh, but the, they were really very simple vines. They were head-trained vines. Um, they were a mixture of uh, different red varietals for the most part. Um, most of them were uh, cuttings that came from Europe. And um, uh, but I can't I can't tell you that my great grandfather, grandfather, or grandfather were organic farmers. Uh, I just I just don't believe that that was probably the case. And um, they probably didn't know that that was a possibility. And so for me, even though I'm a fourth-generation winemaker in my, in my family, actually on both my mother's side and my father's side, interestingly enough, um, there wasn't an operation for me to go to. There was the, they had sold the businesses before um, I came on the scene demonstrating the interest in wine. So I just went off and explored Fetzer. Uh, um, <laughs> 27 years, it's a pretty long time. But it was a great opportunity there because the family was really very open to the idea of, of farming organically. And um, I didn't know we were going to actually – this is kind of, kind of fun going down this path. But um, in uh, the mid-'80s, uh, the Fetzer family had hired a fellow named Michael Maltus who was an organic gardener. He was the organic gardener of the year in 1985 for the Organic Gardening magazine. How many times can you say organic, right? 
And uh, he was really an inspiration to me. Uh, the, the fact that he was growing, we had about a five-acre garden at the time, grew about a thousand different varieties of fruits, vegetables, herbs, and edible flowers. And he had this particular method of, of, of farming, uh, sort of bio-intensive, if you will. But he was the one that um, it caused me to think that there was there was something else other than um, an, another another way to make wine, another way to farm than what I thought was the only way. And that's when um, his inspiration inspired me by just by virtue of the nature of the quality of the fruit and vegetables that he was growing. It was just amazing. And um, I remember that garden. Actually, the first time I ever actually talked to you was in that garden. That, is that right? That's a long time ago. Wow, yeah, that's a long time ago. Hmm. Yeah, inspiration. Has anybody else here ever been up to that garden, the Fetra Garden? Yeah. yeah it, was a, it was a beautiful now, yeah. garden. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that uh, that started so that was me down a, the that path. was a key moment. That's a very so key so I think what we're going to get into talking about um, regenerative farming, where you which is really the term you're using now, um, and you're part of a, a very interesting project we can get into a little bit later. But let's start with this. Why don't you break down for folks a little bit the the journey you took from sustainability to organic to biodynamic to regenerative? Like, <clears throat> what were the steps? What were key things that moved you from one place to the next? Well, when I started down the path of the sustainability, it was that, as I said earlier, I I wanted to make uh, I wanted to run the business differently. I I came out of winemaking and I had the opportunity to run the company, and and um, and I knew that I wanted to do something different, and I knew that I wanted to make a difference, and I wanted to make a contribution. Those are just that's just how it showed up for me. And um, so I took my uh, my business team, you know, the head of sales and finance and so on and so forth, and we went out in the woods and spent three days together, and we explored what is it, what's our purpose, and we decided that our purpose was to enhance the quality of life. That was the purpose of our business, which is not normally something you'd hear from a business guy, you know. It's like what? And uh, so of course, when I came down from the mountain, so to speak, in the woods. And stood in front of the 400 people that worked for me, like, and I was carrying like the the tablets, so to speak. And I said, "We're going to enhance the quality of life." They thought we were doing something other than drinking wine up there. So, but that that really opened up a whole new possibility. So we just explored that statement, our mission statement, and we um, had to find a, a way of living that and expressing that. And that's where we came up with the triple bottom line. And we organized the company around three different sets of strategies, one around economics, one around the environment, and one around community and our people. And uh, that then became the framework for the California Wine Institute's program, is this triple bottom line approach and what we were doing at, at Fetzer. So then you moved, then you went to organic because you had that experience with the organic uh, gardener. <clears throat> right. Then we started to explore the what, what could we do as far as organics, and we created the brand Bonterra. And Bonterra is uh, still alive and well and kicking and making some really beautiful, great wines from up there in Mendocino County. So it's 100% organic. Uh, once again, we went out into the market. Nobody nobody was making organic wines. I and mean, just people just shook their heads and... But we were, I, I was so passionate about it, they just couldn't say no to me. So they'd you know, buy a case, and then they maybe buy another case. So it eventually it, it, it worked beautifully. But in, in each case, as I've gone through this, for me, it's sort of an exploration uh, process. Um, I, I felt like there was more to farming than organic. And um, I was just um, talking to Mela down in the back here. She has a beautiful biodynamic vineyard out on the coast that uh, I uh, we had a mutual colleague who passed away five or six years ago now, Alan York, who was really the leader of the biodynamic movement when it came to grape growing. And he was just an amazing inspiration. And so Alan and I would spend a lot of time together and, and he invited me to a study group and, you know, sort of the rest is history. I was just caught hook, line and sinker. I'll say one, so one little story there. So reading Rudolf Steiner, who was the founder of biodynamics was, it's really tough. It's not just, it's tough sledding. It's just not easy. It's just not easy. And, uh, 
So I got my little book and I was so proud and I thought I'm just, I'm going to read and I'm going to be ready for the study group the next day. And one, I quickly realized that you can't prepare a day ahead. <laughs> it's, it's like a month ahead. Even it's, even if it's 10 pages, one little chapter. And so I read it four times and I made my notes and I was ready to go. And we, I, I got there and to the study group, and after about 15 minutes of discussion, I thought to myself, I'm not sure if I read the same book they read. <laughs> so it's just, and yeah, so Alan became our guide, and he kind of walked us through these amazing distinctions, I'll call them, um, on how to hold a farm and how to hold the possibility of farm. He's the one who taught me the context that you really, you're listening for the farm, you're listening for the farm to show up. You're listening for the farm to express itself. You're listening for the farm to tell you what it needs. And it's, in, it's a very different way of engaging in farming. And so it's really all about expanding one's consciousness and awareness of what is happening on the farm so that you can provide and you can be that, uh, that steward. That steward to so that's a good place to go. Um, you're... Uh Dark Horse Vineyard, the, you have several properties up, up in, near Ukiah, uh, east of Ukiah, in the Dry Creek Valley, right? It's a beautiful, along the Dry Creek there. Um, beautiful place, and I've been on a lot of farms in my life, and I, when I, I remember when I went onto your farm, I was like, wow, you can really feel and see um, diversity, kind of a vigorous plant life. There were tons of birds. I remember we were looking at bluebirds. There were a lot of bluebirds using the, I, I think it was the um, junipers or some, there was a plant there they were really into that you were telling me about. Um, and there was a, a compost pile, waterworks, um, uh, hedgerows, a lot of very cool stuff on a hillside, beautiful. And so I think it would be interesting for you to just talk about um, the life of the farm. What, you know, the way you, just, you were getting into it there, it's a living thing and and how it expresses its personality, what you've done to cultivate that or to support that. It's a, it's, so it is a really absolutely stunning, beautiful place. So the vegetation is just fantastic, and the topography is gorgeous. And it's 160 acres, and you come off the – it's up in Ukiah. It's a, it's a west, uh, west south, uh, southwest-facing property. It's a mountain – property. So you start at the bottom of the hill and you kind of work your way up through the oak woodlands, uh, oaks, madrones, and manzanita. And we have pastures all along the way on the, up, uh, on the way up the hill. So we have, we have sheep and, um, and cattle. I say cattle. We have two cows, but we call them cattle. And, uh, and goats at times. Uh, we have free-range chickens. And as you as you go up through the this uh, woodland, um, it's it's it just invites you. It's really very inviting. It's a little mysterious because you are wandering through and you don't know what's around the next next corner. And you come up to the first plateau, and we have a beautiful ten acre vineyard there, and we call it the barn block because the horse barn is is there, and we have a few horses that we use for for, for fun. And then we have this just this beautiful, um, what I call a natural insectary area, where we have this uh, huge uh, fir grove. It's probably 150 fir trees. Um, um, and we built a sort of botanical um, gardens in, in that area there. And then from there, we, we dropped back down um, uh, the hill and the pathway down to the horse barn. And we passed the horse stables. And then we work our way on up past the pond. So we, we capture water you know, just using the runoff, sheet runoff from, from the hillside uh, to use for irrigation. Although we're now at the point where we're not irrigating, we're dry farmed, which is really quite unusual for a hillside mountain vineyard that is using permanent cover, which is craziness in farming. Um, and uh, as we wander up, we have a lot of birds on the property, primarily because we created these little... Uh, safe havens for the birds to be able to go from tree to tree to tree. So we planted a lot of olive trees, and we have some beautiful olive groves uh, along the way. And pasture. So we pasture sheep there in the off-season. We just took them down out of the vineyard because they can be up there during the off-season, and we brought them down into the into the pastures. Um, and then we, we work our way on up to the top of the hill, and we have 60 acres of all red grapes. So we have Cabernet and Zinfandel, Petit Syrah, Syrah, and Grenache on this, on this mountain piece. So it, it rises about, uh, 
seven or eight hundred feet from the from the bottom to the top, and um, the vineyards. Some of the vineyards are, are quite steep; they're thirty percent grade, which are terraced, and the rest of them run up and down the hill. So we've um, we've over the. It's, it takes time to develop. Um, a biodynamic vineyard in the in the sense in the way we wanted to do it, we felt that it was important to find a way to get the roots to send their shoots down deep um, and so we farm in a particular way where we 're always move, removing the roots every three years, the top roots, so that the vine gets the message that jesus i i I need to go down deeper so we know our so our our roots on this mountain vineyard are probably 20 feet deep at least at this stage of the game so for us it allows us to one is i believe um, extract the full expression of the property by virtue of those those, um, really deep roots and the other thing is we've we found that we can use cover um we can it just was just four years ago, and it became part of my exploration of how can I do, how can I do what those cattle guys do in that close grazing process? How can I learn from them? Because I think that's the ultimate um, example of truly regenerative agriculture, truly regenerative farming. So, uh, explain what you mean by that. yeah. So the example I use is, um, you know, we we all probably watched a lot of westerns in in our day, and you you remember all of the buffalo that used to roam. You know, we don't see too much in these days, but there's this uh, natural um, rhythm that occurred in the 1800s. We'll call it 1700s and, and and way past, way back, where animal the the, the, the these big herds would roam the uh, plains, not only in this country, but in other countries, somebody just, uh, Steve asked asked me about um, Africa and he was talking about the buffalo in Africa. So when the, when these um, large herds roam, they just eat everything in, 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 in their way. There's hundreds of thousands, even a million, um, million ahead in some of these herds. And as they ate, they would, of course, defecate, and, and then they, their hooves would work up the ground, and we'd be pushing that organic matter down into the soil. And it was that um, makeup of or, that kind of organic matter, that kind of impact, that created an environment for perennial grasses to grow. Most of the grasses on the plains these days are annual grasses. So the stability that the perennial grasses created was unique. And the... The, 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 the actually plains are probably um, probably store more carbon than probably any other ecosystem because they're constantly pulling carbon down out of this out of the the cosmic and uh, and into um, into the plant and it works its way down into the roots then the, the mycorrhizal fungi work on the roots and they slough off they're sloughing food for microbes and back into the soil. So there's this, this beautiful natural cycle that exists in that kind of dynamic where um, animals are grazing. Now today we don't have the buffalo, but what farmers have discovered is that you can mimic what the, what the, um, what the buffalo did in, in those earlier days by creating a, a method of moving your animals into small um, small spaces, not tight spaces, but smaller spaces, where they would maybe eat for a couple hours or maybe the day, and then you pull down a little electric wire and then they move into the next spot. That, that process is amazingly transformative as to what you can do to build organic matter in the soil naturally, just using what we have available that's free if you will it's the it's the carbon in the air that's pulled down into as i described through the plant the microbes break down that carbon and they break down the organic matter into humus which then provides the nutrient um, force for the plants um, to continue to propagate and then ultimately grow more forage which allows them to pull down more carbon so, so you started with the fact that you saw this and you wanted to do something similar with their vineyard. Yes. And I kept saying, I can't do it. It's just not possible. There's no way to do that. 
And so I, but I continued to um, pursue different ideas and different concepts as how you could actually do that in the vineyard. And I realized that Alan York had put me on a path of this uh, process of removing the roots under the vine causes my roots to go down deep. And I thought, well, I'm just going to have to test it. And so about five years ago, I started to leave the cover crop, natural cover on, on, in the vineyard. And I, we didn't, we didn't disc it and we didn't cultivate it because when you cultivate, you open the soil up, exposes the carbon, the carbon burns up and it goes back up into the atmosphere again. So we're just contributing to that, all that CO2 that we know that's a problem today. And so, and, um, so the, but we lived, I lived, I lived in the space of believing that we needed to cultivate because we needed to reduce the competition, the competitive plants in the, in the vine row so that they didn't compete with the plants themselves, the grapevines themselves. And I, and I came to the realization that that's, that's not true. You, we, if we, um, if we if we institute different practices, we can create a different environment that allows for one to do that. And I also realized that I didn't need to I didn't need to irrigate any longer either. So I was irrigated. I irrigated for twenty years. I, I cultivated for twenty years, and one day I just stopped, and the vines were fine. And on, on top of that, these last three years, I've had the biggest crops I've ever had. So go figure. It's just the craziest thing. Well, um, so this is this. Is, so there, what I'm hearing a couple things. <clears throat> One, it's the attention. It's the intention to try and work with nature in a way that um, gets that natural cycle that evolution developed over millions and millions of years, billions of years. Um, so it's an intention, but it's also an awareness, um, ability, an interest in. And this is, I think, what you and I have talked about in the past. Rudolf Steiner, one of the things that he really brought was this idea of how you look at things and how you open your mind to look at things differently because our big challenge is that we have an industrial model of agriculture. We tried to turn farms into factories, and there are consequences. You destroy all the diversity. You degrade the soil. You get dependent, as you've talked about, on inputs, right? So you're what what. I'm hearing you say is that by observing in a certain way and change and adapting, you don't have to do those things that we've believed. So talk about the awareness, like how, what is that? Um, what do you mean by awareness? Cause you've used that term in the past. Um, well, let me say a couple of things here first. So, um, well, I'm, I'm going to suggest that the paradigm of farming today is extraction. It's just extractive. We see the soil as a substrate. We put synthetics on it. We we remove more more uh, more nutrients, more elements through harvesting, and then the next year you go back and do it again. So, conventional farmers use synthetics. Um, they use synthetic nitrogen in order to um, replace what's been removed. And in organic farming, we use natural materials. So we make compost. We plant uh, legumes, cover crop that extract nitrogen from the air, build nitrogen into the soil. Uh, we um, graze animals so we can get their natural manure in the vineyards. Um, the, then biodynamic would be the next step for us. And in biodynamics, we, we farm on a base of organics. So we use just natural materials. We don't use, you don't use any chemicals. But in biodynamic farming, we... The framework for us there is that we believe that there's more than nutrients and elements that have been removed. We say that there's a life energy that's been removed from the soil. So we use a certain, um, a certain um, um, uh, we call them preparations, certain plant-animal mixtures that we put on the soil or we put on the plants themselves in order to put that life energy back into the soil. And I would sort of say simply that it's um, uh, biodynamics organics, regenerative, regenerative is a larger cloak, is really organized around farming in service of life. Not in, not in service of consumption, not, as, not in service of extraction, not in service of, we recognize that we're here for the planet, the planet's not here just for us to, to take from. So it's a very different framework and a very different mindset. 
the other one, um, actually, John sort of inspired this in me. Um, so I've, um, uh, I, I have a um, young daughter that's in, inspired me um, to create this sort of metaphor in this framework. So I like to say that um, raising a biodynamic vine is like raising a child in the sense that um, in biodynamic farming, we believe that it's not about the vine. It's about the health of the space in which you grow. So with our children, um, we, when they're young, there's some opportunity for management and control. But really, what we really have to offer our children is the contribution of a particular environment, a particular space for them to be able to choose and explore. So we can feed them well, we can feed them organic, give them a chance to go to good schools, to live in good neighborhoods, to have good choices of art or music or whatever it is that they, sports, whatever that they choose. And in the end of the day, our greatest hope is that they, as they grow up, they're fully expressed, fully expressed and happy. Well, it's the same thing for a grapevine. The the energy and the dynamic is not around the child or the vine. It's really around the space in which the vine grows. So we pay a lot of attention to the health of the microbes beneath the soil. We pay a lot of attention to the flora and fauna on the farm itself. So throughout the farm, I have what I call a, um, a bug highway, a bug farm, and a bug strip. So there's these... Um, avenues, if you will, of insectary plants that uh, bring um, insects. And we plant nectar plants, and they attract different types of insects. It creates the balance so that we don't have to use the pesticides. So we find that, and Michael mentioned the bluebirds, we have a, we have a flock of bluebirds. And, you know, they don't usually hang out in flocks, but we have so many up there. But when you create that kind of environment, you're drawing in a large diversity of birds and insects and small mammals. And it's all part of the life. It's all part of farming and service of the life of the, of the, of the farm. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Well, it, it reminds me, um, the, th- the big change that seems to be coming, coming about, hopefully, um, and when we get to the Q&A, I'll be interested with people. There are a lot of people in this room who know a lot about these things and, and what's emergent. Um, so uh, the, the thing that really struck me as I listened to you, and every time I hear you talk like this about what you're doing, it reminds me a lot about the, the framework, the paradigm of Native Americans in the sense that Native Americans looked at the land as a place and in which they worked with the life that was there because that was how um, they could sustain their lives, um, their civilizations, um, their communities. And <clears throat> it's a completely different fo- focus and approach than we have now in the dominant farming system. I mean, you're really talking about working with nature and an awareness and appreciation for nature, like a, a reverence for it. Um, which is so counter to the system that's been developed over the last 100 years, 80 years. So, you know, the, t- the title of this talk is Farming to Save the Earth. And um, I want us to kind of get into that. We have 10 more minutes. So I want to talk uh, before we get to Q&A. So I want to I have you talk about why this is so important that it's happening on the farm that people are thinking this way about the farms and what the implications are for the rest of... Because the earth is a big place. And there's a lot of things going on in energy, water, other places that, that um, are also having a lot of negative impacts like agriculture is. So let's, let's get into that a bit. Sure. Well, in every year, the wildlife, um, World Wildlife Report comes out and it, it points to all of the environmental degradation that's occurring 
pollution, simply CO2 in the atmosphere. We know it's, it's creating global warming, therefore climate change. We know that's an amazing destructive force. We know the impact that it's having on, on rainforest with, uh, it's just changing the temperatures in the can- canopy and some insects are dying, which is, it was a food source for another animal or insect or bird and they're starting to pass they're starting to die so we're seeing a, an extinction if you will of, of wildlife on the planet and as the population grows we know that we're having a negative impact on on that we also know that the chemicals that we're using you don't we don't go a day without hearing about glyphosate right so those uh, and glyphosate is hugely popular in, in my industry and pretty much for almost all farming and, and it is a, it is not a good chemical. So those chemicals are polluting the waterways um, all over the country. You know the you can read stories about the uh, the Ganges or the Yellow or the Nile or you know even in this country the Colorado. I don't think it makes it down to the down to the um, Gulf any much anymore. So we've really stressed um, stressed waterways. The um, I was in Iowa just not too long ago, and they were telling me about how they have all these drain tiles under that beautifully rich soil, but they use so much nitrogen, it all ends up in the Mississippi and ends up going down into the Gulf and creating this huge area of hypoxia. It just kills all of the life in the soil. So these these things are happening all around us. I mean, not the least of which is the the loss of um, forest, particularly rainforest. For, it's just it's just mind boggling. I almost it almost makes me sick to even talk about it. But in the last twenty five years, I think it's three hundred million acres have been removed. Just it's just mind boggling. So the the rainforest is the it's the it's such a critical component as I was describing how CO2 comes down into these little plants on the plains. We can imagine how important the rainforest is to the planet and we're losing it. You know, since I think the beginning of time, since we started removing trees, we've removed 50% of the trees on the planet. It's just, just really crazy. So this mindset that we have, um, of extraction or the planet's here for us to utilize the way we want to use it. It's just not. It's just not working. And in in that awful description I just created there, that picture, um, farming is sort of right at the heart of it. A lot of the rainforest is coming out in service of farming. Um, a lot of the pollution is coming out. The plot of the pollution is a result of farming. So they're saying that they point to, they believe that 50% of the problem, or actually I think it was 58% of the problem has to do with farming. So I, I, I believe that there's a way, and I've spent time talking to um, conventional farmers about the concept of regenerative. Not the concept of organic and not the concept of biodynamic because that just takes it too far out of the realm of possibility for them. But if you speak to them in a way that that you can paint a picture of how they can build the restorative capacity in the soil naturally, using those methods that I described, they can start to see a path forward because they know that that their their farms are not performing the way they want to perform because they're overgrazing or they're overcultivating. Um, they're losing topsoil, and it's they intuitively know it, but they just don't know what to do about it. They just don't have a sense. And um, it just takes a few little stories, a few little examples for them to you know, just start to perk up and say, oh, that's what I can do. When you tell them, if you can increase the organic matter in your soil 1%, you can add 20,000 gallons of storage in your soil per acre. One percent. Now, I'm not saying one percent is easy to do, but it's definitely possible. And it's the way my vineyard's working now. As I mentioned, I don't have to irrigate any longer. It allows me to not have to turn on the irrigation. And, um, of course, that saves saves carbon as as well. So this, if we can break this cycle of um, farming the way we farm, using synthetic pesticides and herbicides, 
Punk decides, all the sides, we, um, we can start to change the direction of, um, and start to alter the contextual framework in which we're farming, that framework of extraction and extraction for more or extraction for consumption or extraction for creating wealth or however one would want to describe it to a different, to a different paradigm of one of building life and building energy into the farm and into the food. Yeah, which we didn't really get into. No, we didn't get into that. We probably don't have that much time. We have less than five minutes. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, we have like four minutes before we go to Q&A. So maybe actually I think this is interesting. I think this would be interesting for people. Um, uh, if you can kind of march through the linkage to health, Rudolf Steiner health and, and the early years and, and, and why, why there's also very important health implications to all this. So Rudolf Steiner was a polymath. He knew a lot about a lot of things. And um, one of the areas where um, he didn't spend a lot of time in is, was in farming. But people were constantly asking him to come to the ranch and come share their, his ideas. He, um, he was a spiritual scientist, and, but he was a natural scientist as well. I mean, he was in both, both areas. But he, what he recognized what was missing is the... This, that, that spiritual side, that energic side, that energy that, that, that was missing inside of soils and was in, missing inside of the, the animals that, uh, that were, um, were on those, on those uh, soils. So he agreed to do a series of lectures, and he did a series of about um, seven lectures over seven days, eight lectures over seven days. And the reason he decided to do it was he believed that we were, there was a significant missing at that time. And he didn't believe that there was enough nutrition in the food back a hundred years ago. That was, that was missing for him. So he agreed to do this series of lectures to give us some insight in how to put that nutrition back in the soil because he believed that in order for us, this is a hundred years ago, almost a hundred years ago, to be able to tackle the issues that we're dealing with today we were going to need to have a, a more expanded consciousness and a more expanded awareness of what it was that we were doing and what it was that was missing. And he felt that that was going to come through food. So that's why he created this series of lectures, just to open up that there's a whole new paradigm and a whole new context for farming that could be and, and, and explain what the difference was going to be as a result of that. Okay. Um, so... I think I, I think I'd like to open it up now because I think we can have a, yeah interesting co- set of conversations with people. So, sir, yes, your example is one of perennials with cover crops. If you have a farm which is mostly annuals, say corn, something like that, you would create maybe cover crops to enrich the soil, but then you're planting the corn to extract it. Hmm. Yeah, How do you, you know, do so the equivalent of the <laughs> twenty foot um, roots, deep roots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In an annual, uh, those are vines versus uh, right the annual. Yeah. Well, there's a. Uh, um, I mentioned that I was back in Iowa not too long ago, and um, it was a, for a particular purpose. But what I had a chance to do is go out to the Iowa State. Um, research farms, and there was a particular project there. It was about 20 acres. It was called the Margin, Marsden Project, and it was a crop rotation project. What, and I just assumed, you know, we knew about crop rotation a couple hundred years ago, 300 years ago, right? I figured everybody in, in the Midwest was doing crop rotation. It's not true. There's two crops, soy and corn, and then the next year it's corn and soy. And then the um, – but on this particular Plot and they it had been um, it, it had ten years of work um, consistent with the, the year before, so that was uh, it was uh, replications ten years of replications. They discovered that if you added um, one other crop, and to to your point, it was alfalfa, so it was a, a legume, and you you could squeeze that in and still get your two rotations of the other, and you could squeeze that in, and and what it would do is it would provide the nitrogen, but it would also reduce the amount of demand for pesticides by eighty percent, fertility by eighty percent, 
and herbicides by 80%, if you can imagine. And it increased the productivity of the property by 10% from dollar, from a dollar standpoint. So they were, um, and, and the other thing that they included is uh, what they, they're calling conservation agriculture now, where they, instead of cultivating it in, they were just chopping the corn stalks off at the, at the top and then pl- seeding back over that. So a lot of the things I was talking about was maintaining cover on it and maintaining cover on the, on, the, on the ground and not cultivating. All of those things were implemented just through that one little piece. Now, that wasn't an easy sell. <laughs> it wasn't an easy sell in, in that part of the country, and they're still not 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 move, quickly moving to crop rotations. But they're all different types of solutions in all t- different types of situations. Yeah, I was going to ask you the question about Africa, but another one came up. Uh, this uh, just this morning, I read a new article uh, that came out by uh, Bill McKibben uh, in the New York Review of Books, "The End of Oil," and it looks like. We might be saved in terms of of energy just because of economics, but that's because the banks realize that uh, alternative energy is where to go. How do you convince agriculture, agri-industry, that that's where to go? Well, that's a great question. Well, I don't know. I don't know when the alternative energy thing started. Maybe in the 70s, we can say. And I'm sure people were talking into rooms of people that were not interested in hearing it. They didn't believe it. It's not possible. It's too small. How could how could you how could you get solar power to to make up for all of the energy that's provided by by oil or gas? And um, but over time, you, they we started to somebody started to see it, and then somebody else started to see it, and today. It is the new investment frontier, frontier for um, for venture capitalists. You know, solar, solar, wind, but it doesn't blow enough, though, right? It doesn't blow often enough. Sorry, I just couldn't help myself. And um, so, the it's the same kind of dynamic here. So for me, you know, sharing this with you, and I'll share it with others, and others, and others. And there's actually a grass um, a grass fed exchange um, symposium taking place up in Santa Rosa right now. This uh, actually tonight and tomorrow and the next couple of days. So the grass, um, the um, animal grazers, the um, the cattle grazers have been exploring um, what they call mob grazing or intensive grazing, what I, which I described earlier, and it's really taking hold. And, uh, and it's, and it's a, it's a, it's absolutely a beautiful thing. There's a farm that I visited up in, um, the sand hills up in Nebraska, um, just a couple, a couple years ago. They, it's a 500 acre ranch. They run 1600 cows on it. Um, they've taken it from a very unhealthy, a few, um, different species of grasses to the point where the grasses were six and eight feet tall in some, some of the areas. They did this rotational grazing. They just kept building the forge and building the forge to the, the, um, the point now where there's 500 species of grasses at this stage of the game. And it just provides this, this beautiful energy for the cow. And at the same time, they're growing amazing grasses. So the, um, the, the opportunities are immense. And so that's, that's in the cattle industry, you know, I'm working on it in the, uh, in, in the wine industry, but I speak to all different agricultural industries. Just to follow up to that question, UC Davis has been a, a huge influence on the modern wine industry. Are they getting behind regenerative, regenerative agriculture? Mm. Well, it's not that I haven't been there. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I, I, um, one of my concerns in this area is Monsanto is still huge, and they provide a lot of the resources for research inside of these research in, uh, institutes, um, college in, institutes, and uh, but they don't ask for regenerative research. So the amount of research in that area is so small compared to the money that's supported by the other guys. I, I will, I will, I, I'm not going to totally disagree with you, but I will, I will, because I agree that the preponderance of research is um, 
based on the old paradigm. But there are a lot of young uh, soil scientists. I'm working with a couple right now at UC Davis at the Ag Sustainability Institute who are really thoughtful and <clears throat> are part of, I think, a new generational shift that's been influenced greatly by organic agriculture and this term regenerative, resilient. So I, I, I have um, – <clears throat> I think academia, you know, it's, it's its own world. And there is a – it's very hard to get change there. Um, but I do see things breaking up a little bit in certain places. Um, and there's some, some of the CSUs up in Chico. Uh, there's a really great organic program for dairy and other things going up there. So there are some, and there are elements within the university that are in line. I think biodynamic has a, is not really widely accepted, but some of the thought processes and the attention to the, the need to, for us to perceive more deeply what's going on in agriculture Everyone's aware of that. Their science is really moving. There's a great uh, company now, Pam Marone's company, um, Marone Biointensive. Some of you may know it. We, you know, we're there working with natural. You know, one insect creates a compound that they can use against another insect. So basically, they're mimicking nature as they're doing with grass. And she has she works with people at the at University of California Davis and other and Riverside and 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 Berkeley. So there are elements. I'm a little bit hopeful. Yeah. Cornell's got a great program, too, in Purdue and Michigan. There's some, there are some really areas of hope, for sure. So if you could wave your magic wand and pass legislation in California, or, fe- or policies, I should say, California or federally, you know, maybe federally changing the, pro- the crop, I'm sorry, the insurance program, the crop insurance program or California water storage, you know, just incentives. Any thoughts on this? Renata? Yeah. 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 Renata Brillinger is here from uh, the California Climate Agriculture Network. She's running some really good legislation right now that helps move people in the right direction. in the room. Right? She's... Renata's right over here. Stand up, Renata. Please. Um, Well... It's a, there's a lot going on in California and a lot more that needs to happen in other states and nationally. Um, but we are blazing a trail here. Um, there are so far there's been three hundred million dollars spent in cap and trade revenue on the kinds of practices Paul sketched out, the biological practices, regenerative practices. Um, there's been other some hundreds of other millions of dollars spent on propping up the um, dominant paradigm. Um, so it's a constant struggle at the state to get legislators to understand that we're not going to high-tech our way out of this, um, that we also need to be investing in uh, ecological solutions in agriculture. Um, but there is a lot going on and um, and a lot of um, positive leadership happening here. There's a program that funds farmers for building soil, improving soil fertility and soil health. There's a program to incentivize on-farm water conservation practices. There's a program that uh, keeps farmland in farming permanently, so it limits sprawl, so we don't have increased vehicle miles traveled and embedded energy in our urban areas, concentrates growth in existing urban spheres. Um, and there's a program to reduce um, methane emissions from in, in livestock operations by managing manure better. So um, there's a lot more to be done. It's not nearly as transformative as I think we'd like to see, but um, it's certainly a start, and it does have the potential to ripple out across the country and around the world. So we have a lot to be proud of here and a lot more work to continue doing, and I'd be happy to talk with folks. Um, CalCan is the organization you could Google to find a lot more of the specific policy wonky stuff on this. Uh, I will say that I appreciate your question about insurance um, because that is federal policy. We don't really have a state policy around that. Um, That's part of the farm bill. And um, it is clear that one of the big problems that we have is that we do not tie our insurance subsidies to any kind of – well, with few exceptions, with the kinds of outcomes that all of us would like to see – um, and that that would be a really beautiful place uh, to make a change. But the problem is um, that's also the place where all the money is in the Midwest, particularly with the insurance companies and the banks and all of that. So it's incredibly difficult to change. Um, but, you know, with climate change doing and the floods we're seeing and all the things that are happening to the farmers, um, 
you know, sometimes it takes crisis. So maybe something will happen there in the years ahead because there are a lot of people talking or raising the question that you raised. I would be remiss in not mentioning. So I um, re- recently joined, uh, it's a new startup um, organization. It's called uh, Rock or Regenerative Organic Certification. And it's a, it's a response to one is the, the opportunity for regenerative and, and how that can be framed. And it also recognizes that in the organic world, um, there were some things that some of the organic farmers didn't feel comfortable with when we, they started to go down the um, aquaponics. And so this is a soil-based uh, certification that um, is expanding the framework for the um, – the ecological side. It's also including animal welfare and people welfare, um, employee welfare. And it's, uh, it's really quite an amazing program. It's, it's being, um, developed and supported by Patagonia and, and Dr. Bronner, who are, um, I don't know if you've followed Yvonne Chouinard lately, but he's, he's all about food these days. So it's, uh, it's really exciting to see something like this start to emerge. And the, the, um, I find, I have found myself over the last couple of years going to conferences around the regenerative business and regenerative activities and regenerative farming and regenerative activities in, um, in, in clothing. So, uh, from sheep and it kind of, it, it, it's, it's all the things that Patagonia would be interested in the reason we, why we buy their clothes. Um, so there, uh, it's, but it's an emerging paradigm. It's really an emerging paradigm that, but it's getting a lot of traction. And I think it's, um, I think it, I'm hopeful that it goes down the same path as, um, alternative energy. So you've talked quite a bit about the producer side of things, and I'm kind of curious on the consumer shopper side. Um, so it's it's really it seems there's a shift from this dichotomy of conventional versus organic to now this hierarchy of conventional, organic, biodynamic, regenerative. And how do you explain that to the average person that wants to make decisions about what food to buy? Uh, it's not easy. Uh, it's a problem. Um, it is a very big problem, I think. Um, but generally, the, the the exciting news is that there's a generational shift, I think you're probably well aware of. Uh, the fact that um, the millennials are much more into food and, and care about food in, in a way different from the generation that I came up in. Um, and so there is a willingness and an awareness and a, um, a facileness with the ideas, so it's going to be a little bit easier for them to to navigate the complexities. And also, I mean, you know, organic's been around twenty years now as a federal policy, um, longer than that a little bit. But um, it takes a while, I think, for these things to shake out. Uh, and and we've been in a period of, we're in a period of disruption. So I don't know where it's going to end up. I mean, this whole idea of regenerative agriculture and a certification pro- pro- program for that could could uh, make things maybe more complex for a while, but it actually might resolve some of the issues um, because it it looks at all those things and puts them under one one umbrella, which could be helpful. It's a tough problem. I, I don't think it's an easy problem for a marketer. Um, but also we live in this age where there are a million different choices for everything. I mean, we're, we're I mean, look at the television. Look at, look at, I mean, you, uh, so uh, so I think we're just in this phase, and I think it's part of the evolution of what's going on. We're experimenting in so many different ways, trying to figure out how to get through this next hundred years, particularly in the farming world. And, um, yeah, so that's that's as much as I can give you because I, I don't have a clear answer. Well, I, I, on some level, I think it got sorted out. You see, you know, you've seen how organic's grown. I mean, it's significant. It's 20% a year for a number of years now. And and I and I really believe consumers are smart, you know, and we're smart in the room, and uh, we'll sort it out. You go to go to events like this. And we're interested. We're curious. The next generation we're finding is really very curious, and uh, it's easy for them to pick up information and new ideas, and they they sort it out really really quickly. And we know that that generation, the millennials, is moving pretty pretty quickly in this regard. At least. That's what my millennial tells me. 
I think we're uh, just I'm being told we're kind of at the end of our time for our conversation, but I know you're both going to stick around for about 15 minutes afterwards. But um, I want to thank you both for coming. It's been an incredible night. As we wrap up here, do you have any? Yeah, thank you. As we as we wrap up, what uh, any tips, things we can do as consumers or advocates for this type of farming that can help promote what you're doing? I, I think we talked about consumer and demand, and so much is driven by demand. Any tips, simple things we can do at home or with our families that can kind of plant a seed, so to speak? Just tell everybody tomorrow, you just went to this amazing talk on regenerative. It's the next, next new trend, and it's uh, we all got to get on board. I want, um, I want to tell you that the wine is the red wine is from from Dark Horse. It's from our vineyard, so it's a biodynamic uh, red red wine, and the Chardonnay is an organic Chardonnay from um, Sonoma County. Well, thank you everyone. Thank for, you all very yeah, thank much. Thank you for coming, and uh, we hope to see you next month. Thank you.